Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Langston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. We can't grow this podcast without you, the listener, or the support of our amazing sponsors. This year, we are pleased to announce the support of Matrix Fitness, one of the largest commercial fitness brands in the world and one of the fastest growing in the industry. Matrix Fitness produces training tools that focus on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike. With equipment that focuses on building speed, power, and explosive performance in the most efficient manner, Matrix has partnered with some of the top sporting organizations in the world. As a global brand with local support, the Matrix performance team assists their customers with solutions, research, and training protocols so coaches can focus on what they do best, help athletes prepare for competition, and getting better. For more information, please request their sports performance package from their Canadian Director of Education, Annie.Vilnive at matrixfitness.com and mention the Leave Your Mark podcast to qualify for your 20% discount. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the great honor of uh, talking with Matt Boulay and sort of different than I usually do. Normally I have a bit of a opening and I talk about the person, but today I happen to be doing it live and in person with Matt. So I'm going to let Matt kind of talk to you about who he is. From my perspective, I met Matt uh, numerous years ago, a great practitioner in a lot of different uh, planes of thought and stuff and human movement. And uh, we've just uh, gelled together as uh, professionals and we're going to be doing some work together, but I wanted to spend some time with him learning about his life journey. So Matt, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to finally be here, Scott. (laughs) (laughs) We've been trying to get at this for a while. Yeah, exactly. So why don't you tell uh, the listener about, you know, what you do professionally, so sort of as a background and who you are right now. So professionally, uh, my responsibility is to help people have better qualities of life, and it's to help them in three uh, ways, which uh, can seem separate at first, but are actually interlinked. It's to help them move better, uh, to help them think better, and to help them manage their emotions better. And we do that by creating as much balance in their physical body as possible. And the physical body connects to the brain and then the brain connects back to that body. So it's creating integrity in those networks, which then allows them to be um, who they were really meant to be. So for people to live up to their, their full potential. That's awesome. So now I want to figure out how we get to how you're doing, what you're doing now, how what your journey was. So tell me, take me back. You're from Montreal, are you? Yep. Or, okay. And yep. you grew Born up- and raised okay. in the uh, West Island of Montreal. So uh, DDO for the for the folks that know. And um, and yeah, basically um, was surrounded by. Uh, 
people that uh, that were very loving right off the bat, my immediate family, extended family, and I had really good friends growing up, mostly uh, played sports, okay. uh, and so I was introduced to the notion that, you know, movement was just something you did, it was a part of life, and like most kids, I played hockey, uh, which I still enjoy, uh, watching it on TV more than playing it, uh, just lack of time, but quite frankly, uh, yeah, so just growing up playing sports, very typical upbringing in that sense. So were you a Montreal Canadiens fan growing totally, up? Totally, yeah. So still am. <laughs> It's harder sometimes nowadays, but if you're a fan, you're a fan. And uh, I think it's the legacy. It's it's what the Habs mean to sports that I'm really more a fan of than, let's say, what they're going to do this year or what they did last year, you know? Who was your favorite player growing uh, up? Patrick Roy. Patrick Roy. You were a goalie guy? Or I wasn't even, no. but what I liked of Patrick is that he was probably the most intense of the players I've seen with the Habs. And it obviously led to events that weren't always so positive, maybe in the big picture, but he was true to himself. And that intensity is probably what I think led him to be so successful. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas maybe others aren't as intense. I'm not too sure they achieved the same degree of success that he did. So I find that interesting. So Patrick Roy fascinated me because of how intense he was. That's interesting. That's really cool. And who, who introduced you to sport more, your dad or your mom? It was my dad. Okay. I think if my mom had her way, not that she wouldn't have <laughs> wanted me to play sports because she did, but she was definitely more scared. And my dad wanted me to play a sport partially for the socializing, uh, which I find now was a huge thing because I like to work with so many people. I'm sure I got a lot of that from playing hockey in terms of like even professional collaborations. Mm -hmm. I'm always looking to see who I can do stuff with. Right. And I think that comes from playing uh, team sports. I think there's something to be said about that. Because I, I wouldn't have gotten that from going to school. Okay. Uh, I, I definitely got that from like needing to play as a team and learning who, you know, who, who my left defenseman was and where he was and how I could work with him. And uh, so, yeah, so my dad definitely, and my dad not only got me involved in hockey, but my dad was probably the coach more years than not. And my dad was one of the only dads who would not only come and uh, drive me and pick me up for every practice and game, he would actually stay for every single practice and every single game. I've never seen him leave once. Wow. Yeah, which uh, is huge when I look back because I look at how much time that was. And then I figure I was obviously a significant priority in his life. And, and it's kind of cool to look back and think, wow, that's how much my parents cared and how much they wanted children which uh, definitely fed into how I want to do things uh, when my turn comes around so yeah so it's pretty cool what was your mom's biggest influence on you I mean, um, rigor rigor yeah right. both my parents whenever they did something they did it really well um, and and my mom took care of more of the home stuff so homework for example mm. I remember there was that one day where I just didn't feel like doing the homework and I, I just boshed it you know like it was just garbage and my mom looked at it and she's like, you're not handing this in tomorrow. <laughs> and to this day, I think that was a defining moment because had I had my way, I would have probably started to get lazy because we're lazy by default, right? If we don't have to do something, mm -hmm. uh, we typically don't. And I really think that, because I remember I was in grade three, like I remember vividly, it was uh, French homework and um, I was writing just stupidities just to get it over with. And yeah, and she's like, no, no, no. She was laughing. She's like, you can't hand this in. She probably would remember um, out of like the millions of interventions she did in my life. But that one time I was like, okay, like I can't give garbage work. 
And from that day on, I think that something just changed me where I'm like, okay, if I do something, it has to be done well. And that definitely carried on and through to today. So Our sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com, is back this year with a big lineup of courses across the country and beyond. The practice of reconditioning is literally changing the way we see physical preparation. This is an approach that brings the worlds of therapy and performance together that helps you as a practitioner build more robust clients. Not just rehab injuries or train for fitness and performance, but make people more robust. Life isn't about surviving longer, it's about thriving. And Reconditioning HQ is offering a life mentorship program called Empower You, totally designed to help human performance professionals live their best life. After all we do for others, shouldn't we do our best work for ourselves? If you have an interest in ice hockey, ReconditioningHQ.com, Perform Better, and Matrix Fitness are bringing the best in hockey performance to Mont-Tremblant, Quebec, June 27th to 28th, and it's going to be epic. Check out all of their course offerings on ReconditioningHQ.com today. How did you balance uh, sport and, and schooling? I wasn't a great athlete, and I think I understand more so why now than ever. My parents were very loving, but had no idea what motor control and gaining motor control, you know, how it happened from like zero to like three years of age. So, I mean, I really sucked at sports, and, uh, and it, it's, it's, I look back at it now, and most of the time, if I had the puck on my uh, stick, I was, I was afraid of it. There's really no other way to put it. My heart rate would go up. I would freeze. So I, I would go into like a, a fear response if I had to create a play. Mm-hmm. If, I, if I could manage just skating around and helping out in some assisting way, I was okay. But obviously then you never make, you know, like the triple A's and, you know, you never make the big leagues. But I look back at it now and I look at how... I learned, you know, how to stand upright, how I learned how to move. And I mean, having redone this work on me, because that's what I do with people later on, I understand now more than ever why I just really wasn't a great athlete. And people will say, oh, you know, it's in you or it's not, it's genetics. Yeah, to some extent. Like I'm thinking Steffi Graf's and and Agassi's kid, if if that kid doesn't become like a tennis star, like something went wrong. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? When you're given those genes, but then the environment is also huge. If, if the kid just decides, like, I'll play video games, I'll smoke pot, and, like, screw tennis, doesn't matter who, the, who, who his parents are, he just won't be a great tennis player. Right. So I think, outside of genetics, I could have probably been a lot better, and that's obviously what I like to promote to kids and older kids now, is that outside of how competent they are at moving, um, they can be better, and if we go to the root cause, they can maybe be even better. So mm-hmm. that's that's the idea. I'm going to segue back to that in a bit. I want to understand how you found your passion because one of the things that struck me since meeting you is, uh, you know, I see the passion in you for what you do. Um, but tell me the story of you know you in high school and and sort of how you sort of find your pathway and. It may be circuitous, it might be relatively direct, but I'm interested in that. I want to take a minute to connect you to our newest sponsor, Zenkai Sports, who are here with a question for you. Why do we sweat? 
Our body is perfectly designed to cool us down, but most apparel companies use moisture-wicking fabrics that remove our sweat, which makes us overheat faster and actually hurts our performance. Zenkai uses cutting-edge technology that repels sweat and other liquids. Zenkai apparel lets the sweat stay on your skin, keeping you cool for longer and repelling odor-causing bacteria. This means Zenkai apparel can be worn 10, 15, 20 times with no washing required. This lowers your carbon footprint and saves money, so you can be a hero with your planet and your family. Join the revolution for better apparel technology. What's in your ZNA? We've partnered with Zenkai, so if you head over to www.zenkaisports.com and use the discount code LYM20, you'll get 20% off your entire order. Um, I became a high school teacher. Uh, I think I really had no idea what I wanted to do. And I saw some teachers influencing myself and others in a positive way. And I probably lacked a lot of originality. And I figured, geez, I'm in direct contact with someone who's having a positive influence on other people um, at an age where they're highly influential. So where you can probably have a really deep impact. So that's what I'll do. And I always had simultaneously an interest in sports, uh, but I figured I'll go and do my bachelor's of education. So I graduated from University of Montreal in 2001 with a bachelor's of education. I taught high school for five years. Mm-hmm. And um, public speaking comes easily to me. Other things don't, but public speaking, I'm like, it's something that's just easy. Mm-hmm. So I got better at it through going through a bachelor's of education. And um, thing is, I just couldn't work for the government for much longer. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I got into the profession and uh, the, gov- the Ministry of Education was starting to decrease the demands on what it took to get your high school leaving. And it's, it's only been getting worse, you know, from what friends of mine tell me that are still in this. Um, and I just couldn't represent a system that was asking less of people and giving them the same rewards. Right. It just didn't vibe. So I did that for five years and the year I got tenured is the year I left. Uh, which for those that don't get it when you teach your whole purpose in life is to get tenured and essentially it just means you're guaranteed a job for life so the year I get tenured I show up in the principal's office and I'm like listen for the salary you guys pay me I just can't buy the shoes that I like which really wasn't true it's just I, I didn't have it in me to tell my employer that the system that she was working for was going to hell mm-hmm. and, and it has been ever since um, and I had an interest in sports, so I became a personal trainer. And then I was basically just concerned with how people didn't move as well as I thought they were supposed to. Uh, and then I started going more towards physical therapy by becoming an osteopath. And I just, I, the thirst for learning was always there. So I just kept adding on and modulating my approach. Okay. Um, which, which leads us to today, really. Right. Who were some big influences in your in your sort of pathway that of thinking like you must have run into said person said person who kind of will open a door for you of yeah. thought 2002 I met with um, Yvetier okay. uh, Yvetier at the time uh, we're looking early 2000s was one of three uh, people that Poliquin had taken under his wing and he had trained them specifically to follow in his footsteps um, so that always impressed me because I was a fan of Poliquin already he was one of the first guys back in those days who made training more scientific and it 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 started going a bit beyond bro science oh you know there's tempo and oh there's this training technique and there's that training technique and maybe you can do a month of this and a month of that 
Um, and that was really kind of where I had first learned that that training could be scientific. And it was the Palkin Principles that was the first book I read. So as I'm starting to get to know about Charles, I'm meeting one of his associates. And then he was a posturologist, uh, so he's the first one who introduced me to the work that I still do today. Mm. And he just looked at my imbalances and he says, listen, some of them are coming from your feet. Some of them are coming from your eyes. And this is how we can work on them. And I understood nothing of what he did, but he seemed to have a comfort level with managing me that to this day impressed me. And I figured, okay, well, I'm going to be like Eve. Like, outside of the techniques, it was just the comfort. And the fact that he seemed to know, okay, I'm going to do this first, I'm going to do that first. Uh, and everyone's approach changes and evolves over time. But at, at any given point in time, I get the feeling that Eve was very comfortable with applying what he had learned and I had a lot of respect for that and I did see results from his approaches and I found him original he was combining a lot of Paul Czech work um, applied kinesiology osteopathy and posturology so I mean in two th- these are techniques that are like pretty hot today in mm-hmm. 2002 yeah. um, I was like shit and he was involved with a few Olympic athletes the uh, short track uh, skating team Marc Gagnon was one of his athletes at the time and these guys had done quite well at the Olympics so all the factors were there for me at 20 to be like, okay, this is like really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, Paul, Paul, uh, and then Paul Gagné, I got to meet in the same time because I did my, I took my first posturology course then in 2002 because Eve was like, well, you might not understand anything to life, but there's a course coming up. I think you'll be interested. And that was the first time I got my hands on posturology in 2002. And I left the course not understanding a freaking thing, mm-hmm. but I knew there was some value there. And that obviously never left my mind. And that's why I keep going back to it. Mm-hmm. And that's why I kept going back to it until 2007 when I really started practicing posturology and I haven't stopped since then. Some really interesting um, sort of, I would call them geographical and cultural differences. Uh, and we were talking about before we came on about some of those things, uh, worldview kind of stuff. And I'm really interested in your take on it. But, you know, there's guys like Way and these other f- people from from Europe who've come over and brought some of their thought processes. Those were sort of uptaked by certain, call them pioneers, early pioneers, like the guys you were just talking about, Charlie and, and Eve and Paul, etc., who kind of got into this stuff. They're, they were sort of lateral thinkers. And then you have this American sort of driver that, that's been around the NSCA and all the strength conditioning, football and all that kind of stuff. Sort of, you know, different camps, call it. 100%. Different places, right? And the, these things push push the rock in different ways. And Charlie was very much a guy who was kind of in the middle of that, kind of playing in the American sandbox, playing in the European sandbox. What, in your experience, what do you see as maybe the cultural or the um, sort of, I don't like the word bias, but the, the way people are brought up in, say, Europe versus here versus the states that orients their thought process differently from all the experiences you've you've had it's a phenomenal question because i think it's the reason why there are so many misunderstandings in this industry and so much confusion mm-hmm. i think it really boils down to the fact that people a won't admit that there's a cultural bias in what we learn i even make jokes about it i'll i'll, I'll tell you my joke about osteopathy in quebec So there's this thing where everyone, and again, it's a prejudice, it's awful, but it's partially true. 
where most kids that go through Concordia in athletic therapy, if they're looking for more education, there's not going to be 50 places they end up. They'll end up at osteopathy mm-hmm. at the CO. Mm-hmm. So, and again, this is 20 years of me looking at this and, and it's not like it's every time, but it's often. Mm-hmm. And then guys that are like NSCA guys from the States, if you mention the word brainstem to them, we'll just shut the conversation down. They'll tell you they're not even allowed to look at it. Right. Because it's not within their which which I get, but then again, brainstem is part of movement. We're not talking here looking at pathology, so I'm thinking, but you don't even want me to mention those words. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the French and then you'll bring up some things from here and they're like, We have no idea what you're even talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, in France right now they have this trend called motor preferences. So what they'll do is they'll look at an accomplished athlete and let's say he has a preference for rotating to the right versus the left. Some of those guys, and there's courses on this, will go as far as to say that's his motor preference. And then, then we need to train in a certain way. Whereas I'm thinking maybe the guy just has you know, a really jammed right hip and he can't pivot to the left. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, uh, you know. So I think if you're a Montrealer and you speak two languages, three would be better, four would be better. And Paul Gagne was the one to tell me this a few years ago. He says we're privileged here because at the very least for being in Montreal, because we have access to at least two languages, we get to be exposed to what's going on in the States, we get to be exposed to what's going on in Europe, and we can, if we're interested, make the best of it. Mm-hmm. But the guys from France, they'll learn, they'll learn English because so much of it is coming from the States. Um, but there is a cultural bias, and I think that uh, I try to beat that bias every day, and quite frankly, that's why I enjoy going and learning from the Americans as much as I do from the French. And taking courses I've done two years with Guy Voyer as much as I became a CSCS at some point. Mm-hmm. So I think that's my relative edge in the market is that when I speak to a group, they might not know everything I've done and not that I've seen everything, but I've, I've been very interested in seeing what, who comes up with what, mm-hmm. maybe seeing where they're from and making some links there. But mm-hmm. beyond that, just going with what is, what is the concept they bring forward? Mm-hmm. I think where it becomes really interesting is when you try to take it all in and then you make your mind with as much of it as possible. So mm-hmm. I think it's up to us to figure a way to do that as best as we can mm-hmm. because the brainstem is part of the, the body. So to be told, it happened to be a guy from the NSCA who told me that a few years ago, but to be told from anyone, oh, that we don't look at, well, you just like, you know. Yeah, we, we cut their head off. You literally did. <laughs> and you wanted to squat. So I'm like, listen, I get that the glutes are important. I get it. <laughs> But how do you think those guys contract? So, so where I have the most fun is in creating these connections between the different things that I've learned. And, and geographically, they come from different areas. There's no doubt. The Americans are very strong in neurology and the vestibular system. The French, not whatsoever. But the French in posturology get the feet like no one else. And the guys in functional neurology in the States don't even really look at feet. But so then I'm like, you guys should just talk. So I kind of take on that role where I'll go to talk in Vegas and I'll be like, dude, you guys, you guys need to look at the feet. But then I'll go to France and I'll be like, you guys need to look at the vestibular system because they're all components of a whole. And I think we just have to put things in the the bowl and not just go go down to two ingredients because that makes for a boring (laughs) recipe, you know? Well, it's easier, right? To, yeah. It allows us to sort of control all the factors that are so so prevalent. So tell me about your, where do you find, what is the moment of finding your passion? Because 
you know, it's clear to me that after listening to you now, you know, you were a teacher, then you, you take the shift into, you know, human movement and all the things around that. You meet a few people who kind of connect. When do you kind of go, ooh, I love this. Yeah. Like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Ah, it was my first session with UBC. Oh, okay. At the time, after I was, you know, in shock with how we did things positively, I had brought in my girlfriend who was having knee issues. And so even he practiced active release techniques like many people do. But at some point he released her quad tendon while she was squatting. And to me at the time, that was just like genius because you figure, okay, this is a practitioner who listens, which right off the bat is pretty good. Right. And they all, they all don't listen. And so that was like, and then, and she tells him it's when I squat and it's when I'm in this joint angle. So he just got his two thumbs on that quadricep tendon and started releasing it in that range of motion. And I thought, this is genius and simple all at the same time. And I, I really have a lot of respect for genius and simple all at the same time. Because complicated, we can always do. But simple and very good, it's very cool. So, yeah, no, it was really meeting Eve. Mm -hmm. uh, if only he knew what maybe he will now with the podcast. Because I haven't seen him in so many years. But, uh, no, he really got me on this path of, okay, this optimization of how someone functions can be done so eclectically with so much originality and um, which is why I think I work differently today part of it is because I, I was never kind of instructed to be too strict mm -hmm. um, independently of the courses I had taken after meeting Eve I had met Eve before so I saw holistic before I was ever told A leads to B or one leads to two so I learned all the more conventional stuff, but in the back of my mind, I was always like, my gosh, Eve released a quad tendon while someone was squatting. Mm -hmm. So, so the possibilities for me of what to do with someone to improve them were always very, very large. Very cool. So is it, is it the teacher in you that allows you to be the, the sharer in you now? Cause we were talking about that before we came on about this concept of people, you know, some people being close to the vest about their stuff that they know and not wanting to share. And you and I, I think, since bouncing into each other, recognize our desire to share. Where, where does that come from in you, that you're a sharer versus a hoarder? Um, I think one feeds the other is that I feel like I have a debt towards humanity. <laughs> I was adopted at birth. Um, uh, so was yeah. I. It's, a, it's, it's a very peculiar thing to think that um, I guess there's always a bit of you know, like life's a lottery in a sense, in many ways. I mean, we don't control much, if anything at all. But the very fact that I landed where I did with the folks that brought me up that are my parents, but, but to know that I could have landed anywhere else, I think from very early on, I realized just how lucky I was. And it never left me that I, I've always felt like somehow I had to give back, to give back just because of how much I was given. And in, and in a state where I was excessively vulnerable where I really couldn't have done it otherwise. Mm -hmm. it, it was that choice of my mom and my dad was just forced upon me. And, and so the fact that it, it was such a good one, uh, I've never not felt the need to give back. Mm -hmm. So then it, it took on different forms, but it's true that to this day, I was just speaking to a kid before coming here who wants to organize a symposium in Thetford Mines. And, and at this point, I have to say, if I go somewhere, there's a fee and it's normal, right? And, and I, I was speaking to the kid and I'm like, I told him, I said, listen, if at the end of the day, you don't have money to pay me and you can just pay for my hotel room, I'll see if I can make it. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's, the, there's still this thing in me where I'm like, like, yeah, I was given so much 
that I at least owe it to others to give and mm-hmm. to, to just, so it's great for business because you learn if you take any business course that if you focus on giving, you'll probably get back, mm-hmm. which I have to say has worked tremendously well, but it's beyond just learning it as a business. It's just, it, yeah. So mm-hmm. that's where it comes from. And then I think, I think then when people say, Oh, I'm, I'm shy to speak in front of people. Well, I didn't have a choice because maybe I was, but considering what I had to give back, I had no choice but to become comfortable mm-hmm. speaking to people. And whether it be one person or 500, uh, I, I had to because that was my thing is I had to, which I still have, I find a debt uh, in that respect. And I don't think I'll ever, I don't even think I want it to change. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think I want to get to a point where I'm like, you know what? No, it's, it's good. I this is where I was supposed to be. I don't owe anything to anyone. I'm like, no, no, no. There's, there's stars that lined up and I find like to, to that idea, I still have a debt. And, and in that sense, uh, I think the public speaking came very automatically because of it. Has there been a, a cost for you to being as passionate or invested as you are in what you do? Two divorces and my health. Okay. So what did you learn? What did you learn about yourself in in divorce that that you discovered that maybe you're trying to change now about the way you operate in life? It's the, it's funny because it goes back to Patrick Roy. It's the level of intensity. Uh, I've often, often lost my shit over uh, details, but let's say I start working on a seminar. Like uh, I have a talk on December 2nd where I'll speak to people in the education field about the importance of posture for cognition. I open one tab to look at a study. I start reading it. I think of another one. And then I have 15 tabs on my computer. And at some point I feel overwhelmed, but it's in that overwhelmed feeling that I feel like I'm really starting to create something good. Mm. And that can have an impact on me to the point where then my girlfriend will say something that should have no consequences. And then I'll just, I'll just lose control over myself. And uh, I don't get violent. I just, I get sick, I get sick and, uh, and I start losing sleep. And, uh, so, so that intensity, I've become better at managing it. Whereas I'll be the first one to say, okay, I'm not working for the next hour. I'm going to take a walk because I feel it building in me. And whereas I used to feel it before and I just, I just didn't have it in me to stop it. It, it was just it was too strong for me. And, and I was happy with the results that I would get from it. So part of that kept driving me to say, well, I'm not going to change that because the the results are good, Mm -hmm. but uh, the results were costly. So I'm trying to get better results now while minimizing the cost, which would be to my sanity and to the people that love me, that surround me and to make their life better as well. Cause they appreciate that intensity. But obviously, you know, like a good glass of wine is good, but if it goes, if, if you spill it, like you can't, you can't even enjoy it anymore. So I think that's what intensity is. It's a good glass of wine, but that leaves just enough room so that if, you know, you, it gives you a bit of a safe zone. If you tip the glass over, you can catch it before it all goes on the floor. So have you found a, uh, call it a hobby that's outside of your passion that allows you to segue away from no so you're you're focused on what you you love and that's what you do yeah um and i've tried i mean my hobby is training and i and, and yes in that sense because the training is the the one thing that takes me out of my head and into my body mm-hmm. 
And I need it to be intense enough that it forces me into it. So for example, some people like meditation and I always make fun of it a bit because I'm thinking it just, for me, it just wouldn't be enough to get me out of my head. Okay. Because while I meditate, I'd be thinking about how I can look at the basal ganglia as well in cognitive interactions. <laughs> so like, fuck, like that wouldn't do anything for me, right? <laughs> I'm like, but was it the caudate or the putamen that had the connection with whatever else? So neurology is this thing where you can always draw more arrows and where you can literally go nuts over it. Mm-hmm. And so part of me really enjoys that because I hate being bored. So I'll never be bored studying neurology because there's always that extra hour you can, which really in the big picture changes nothing. But just in terms of like my comprehension of the phenomenon, yeah, I get off on that. So, but yeah, no training, training. So that's why outside of me not even knowing if and when or when and if I'll compete again in bodybuilding, I train just as seriously and my food is still the same because it's, it's the one thing that takes me out of my head. I mm. haven't found um, a good meal with friends or sex. It's honestly, the, there's, there's three things where for that, for that brief period of time or being with family because quite frankly, they're getting older and, and I, uh, people are dying um, around us as we get older. And honestly, now more than ever, when I'm with people that I love, uh, especially relatives, um, I, I don't think about working anymore when I'm with them. 10 years ago I did okay. but I, I see that it's like slipping now and uh, and I'm happy to like not want to work on a Sunday night if I'm with mom and dad right 10 years ago I'd be like I gotta go home I've got this research paper I need to read wow yeah thank god it's not that anymore <laughs> <laughs> but there was an evolution well, there. I, you know I think a lot, that, that haunts a lot of people who are out there listening that s- some people are, are you know completely encompassed and um and the passion goes into obsession and the question from my perspective is always what's the difference between those two right passion obsession and it is it's a little bit of that click on whether you can actually control it or or you know get away from it to a degree and does it does it overcome you in some sense so it's always interesting to hear different people's perspective in that i want to segue back to something you talked about earlier this idea of you know and it's interesting hearing you talk about uh, being adopted and this idea of, of how much the first few years of life really effectively set the palette for your ability to move uh, and the things you might be able to do or not do as you get older, right? And I, I think to some degree we're not, we're so unaware of this as human beings that it's very haphazard for our children. You know, either you happen to be born into a family that moves or you happen to be born into one that's more sedentary, and now you're, you know, you're, the palette of acquisition changes completely. So with that in mind, first of all, is it that important in your viewpoint, or can you, can you overcome a bad start? And then number two, if you can overcome, or you can't to some degree, or you can, what do we need to do with our kids to create a good start for them? I think you can overcome any and everything, and there's so many examples of that. You look at Michael Jackson, for example, who had the shittiest, um, you know, childhood in terms of how it was reported to us um, by him, the media, and even you know his brothers. And is it because or despite of that, or a mix of both, that he became absolutely phenomenal at what he did? Um, and then you look at Guy Lafleur in hockey, who, for example, did everything wrong. He smoked, 
He liked women. He drank. He didn't wear a helmet. And he was a top player. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, he had charisma and he had flair. And he became uh, a star and the fans loved him. How many guys today in the NHL can afford to be and to have that lifestyle and be at the top of their game? It's probably maybe not as much as many as back then, but but even back then you figure maybe had he eaten more protein and trained and not drank as much beer, would he have been even better? So I think I think we're made to adapt and in the adaptation, the goal is always survival. So then we can, uh, we're able to go beyond adversity. But given more chances, we can probably do more of that with less cost. Mm-hmm. So um, the first few years of life in terms of infancy is where the brain is wired. And so that people understand wiring of the brain just means creating connections that give you all your functions. The very first functions your brain will take care of are the motor ones. So there are 72 movements that a human being should learn from zero to 18 months of age in order to master upright standing. 72 movements in North America, they're never all acquired. It's just a matter of the environment's not very conducive. We're afraid of everything, so we pass it on to our children. They start jumping on the bed, we tell them to stop. They walk on the side of the sideway, we tell them they're going to break their ankle. They start climbing the tree, we're like, shit, the branch is going to fall. So we say no a whole lot, and I think we're saying no to a lot of the things that are then going to be potentially an issue. Whereas if kids don't develop their wiring extensively they're going to build cognitive and emotional management on top of motor acquisitions that's the order in which these things happen Mm -hmm. and there's enough neuroscience studies to back that up at this point i'll give you an example the cerebellum which is a you know the part of the brain for motor coordination in all of the textbooks says that it's motor coordination i was at a conference in vegas two weeks ago with the top functional neurologists and I had read in the research that maybe 40 to 60% of cerebellum is for cognition and emotions. He pulled out a research paper that says it's up to 80%. Whereas we've learned that cerebellum was for motor coordination. Nowadays, we know that 80% of it, although it's still stimulated by the muscles, so by movement, 80% of it is conducive to behavioral and cognitive abilities. So you really, in 2019, cannot dissociate how someone learns how to move and how they live their entire life. Mm. So that being said, I can't see how what you do physically from zero to two will not have an impact on your entire self Mm. later on. And for doing this type of work with people where I, I, I do the same thing with everyone, so it's very unoriginal and people say, oh, it's not very specific. I'm like, no, it's not. Every single human being had to learn these 72 movements. It's in their genome and it evolved over 7 million years, billion. So million. So I can't redo this. I'm not like smart enough. I won't have time, but I can follow through on the steps that led us here. And if I see in someone that there are some of these patterns that aren't well ingrained, well, we can modulate them because the brain is plastic and it can always learn. Will it be as good as if we did it when we were six months of age? Maybe not, but it could be good enough for us to achieve the goals that we had. And in some cases to open doors that had been closed by the person, for example, all badminton is off for me. And I'm like, Dude, it involves you raising your arm and like hitting a bird. Mm-hmm. I would think that unless you have some catastrophic pathology, like we should be able to at least get you to play some badminton. So, so yeah, so that's that's the premise. So yeah, motor development is at the core of how we end up doing everything else. 
So I think it's important and, and I think people are surprised to see how far reaching the effects are when we start optimizing that in them. And at any age, I had a 74 year old recently that we took on, she couldn't take walks comfortably and she wouldn't walk out in the evening because when there was less light, she was more unstable. Took about, that was like was a very good result, even surprising to me, but took about three months now she walks, she says, I'm about 80% less tired after going for a walk and she can walk when it's uh, darker and she's fine. Mm. So for someone who's 74 and I have her crawling on the floor. So it's like, really, when I say I do the exact same thing with everyone, yeah, I'll make modifications to the exercises if they have like orthopedic concerns. And, but, but the brain areas I'm targeting are the same. Mm. So... So I get bored working because it's just always, but, but for where these people are at and where they want to go, it's exciting for them. At the most recent 2019 World Junior Hockey Championships in the Czech Republic, Team Canada's number one goalie was Nico Dawes. Nico is a great story. Heading into his NHL draft year, he was not on the Canadian team's radar. In the summer of 2019, Nico trained hard with the support of the great team at Shield Performance in Burlington, Ontario. He built up his body armor and lost 25 pounds. He came to the Guelph Storm camp in the best shape of his life and earned the number one spot for the defending OHL champs, and then earned his spot with Team Canada on one of the hockey world's largest stages. One of the tools used by Nico was the Matrix Fitness S-Force Performance Trainer. The S-Force is a no-impact, weight-bearing training tool that can improve fast-twitch muscle fiber, increase explosive performance, and support many conditioning objectives. Matrix Fitness produces training tools that focus on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike. For more information, please request the Matrix Fitness Sports Performance Package from their Canadian Director of Education, Annie.Villeneuve, at matrixfitness.com. And mention the Leave Your Mark podcast to qualify for your 20% discount. That you do, and we were talking about that before um, you came on as well. Um, where's your favorite place to go in this world and why? Up to now, it's uh, Lyon in France. Wow. Yeah, uh, I, I've liked France quite a bit, um, but Lyon um, is non touristy. And I like to be around the locals. It's got a lot of the same assets that Paris has. Smaller, more accessible. I like good food very much like you. The food there is better than in Paris. Uh, Lyon is the uh, world capital for gastronomy. Um, and so the food is cheaper and better than in Paris. Uh, and I don't know, there was some, the architecture is just as nice as, it's like, it's like Mm. all the good stuff of Paris in a smaller, more friendly city. Mm. Cause you don't have the Parisians. (laughs) No, but even the French say it like (laughs) the Parisians are something else. Now in Paris, I have to say you either find, I find exceptionally nice people like beyond normal or like super shitty. It's mm. as if there's not much in the middle. Mm. And it's this very cold city where like very much like New York, like on a Monday at nine or 8.50 when they have to get to work. I mean, they have a Starbucks in one hand, a cigarette in the other and get the F out of their way because, so Paris has a bit of that, which Lyon has none of. Wow. And they still have a few museums. They still have the architecture. So I came back from Lyon, Alex, my girlfriend, she looked at me, she's like, are you going into depression? I'm like, I didn't want to leave. I was going to have you come with me. <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't leaving you, but I wasn't coming back to Quebec. Yeah. Lyon has my heart. Yeah, so Lyon is the, my favorite place. That's awesome. What's um, what's your mission as you move forward in your life now? What is what are you trying to 
do? I have two objectives at this point. Uh, one of them is to change the way we practice medicine. And the other one is to change how we practice modern psychology. Um, I'll probably have to leave Quebec in order to do this uh, because I, I don't see that it's going to happen A, here first, or B, with me living within the boundaries of the province of Quebec. Um, but I think too little attention has been given to how the physical body can self-manage and regulate against gravity. And too little attention has been given to the cost of those processes not happening properly. Um, one key quick example, they did a study in the 70s and it's super basic, but they basically had a few people lie down on a table, they took their vitals, and they had the same people stand up. And they noticed that when people stand up, their energy expenditure increases, which I mean, did we really need a study for that, right? But then my whole thing is always, okay, so what if standing up for you is more costly than the person next to you? We're going to die because we're not going to have any more energy to give. Like our body is going to run out of being able to produce ATP. Like that's essentially what death is. So in the meantime, if it's too costly or it's, if it's costlier for you than it should be to produce ATP, if it increases your stress levels, what does that not affect? Because some people would say, well, how, do, how does that have to do with health and psychology? How does it not? Mm -hmm. Because once you start physically fatiguing, your brain's already impacted. The finer areas for your brain, the ones that manage the more subtle things, start functioning less efficiently because you're down to working on core survival mechanisms. So the way you think, the way, the way you reason, your maturity, your, your ability to self-regulate your thoughts and work with people and enjoy life starts decreasing and I'm thinking okay well then that has applications for psychology and then in terms of medicine if the goal of medicine is to keep or to get people healthy uh, well wouldn't you want them to not have these energy leaks just because physically living is hard for them so I think yeah so I have a lot of work on that <laughs> I figured in the next 30 to 40 years I mean they, you know life expectancy is about 80 um, so I don't see myself retiring and I think even if I I think there'll always be more to be done and, but what I really like about teaching others is to think that okay uh, <laughs> maybe at some point I can go and others will get it that this is at least something that needs to be moved forward mm -hmm. and they'll do it with integrity and they'll do it if I dare say properly so mm -hmm. that I can rest in peace <laughs> well that's cool because you know you're, you're essentially talking about this concept really that physiology and psychology are symbiotic and what's happened with our medical construct for most of this last century coming into now, which we're starting to see change now and guys like yourself, myself, other people, there's lots of them out there are sort of integrating into this is that all these circles, instead of being separate circles are all, you know, intertwined, intertwined with one another which unfortunately to a degree makes everything more complex. Yeah. It's harder to study. It's harder to put the, you know, pin the tail on the donkey, so to speak. And it leaves more questions and it gives answers a lot of times. But at the end of the day, that is the truth of it is that, you know, you can't just separate out the physiology and say, you know, it all does this and the psychology and all does this and the nutrition and all does this. They're all doing something all the time. So what you put in your body, you eat, changes your physiology, changes your psychology, and everybody's different in terms of how they adapt to that, right? 
Um, and I, th I think it's honorable that you want us to see that change. And, you know, that's, I think, what's drawn us together for sure. Here again with another word from our sponsors, Zenkai Sports, who want to let you in on a little secret. Performance apparel hasn't changed much in the last 20 years. Most apparel is still based on moisture-wicking synthetics, which not only make you more overheat faster, but are toxic for your body and the environment. Synthetics don't biodegrade, so that stinky workout shirt you have to throw out after six months, it lasts for thousands of years in landfills. Zenkai is the only cotton-based training apparel on the market, keeping your body safe from those scary petroleum-based synthetics found in most workout gear and giving you that extra edge when it counts. Be a part of the solution and join the revolution for better apparel technology at www.zenkaisports.com. What's in your ZNA? For 20% off your entire order, please use the discount code LYM. Yeah, and this is the, as we were saying before we even went on air, this is the whole point behind collaborations because I know I'm becoming versed as best as I can in one thing. But I mean, I know nothing about nutrition and I don't even want to know about it. Like I'll meet people and, oh, and what do you think about, oh, but I can show you. And I'm like, dude, I don't, not that I don't care, but I work with people who will spend the rest of their life trying to figure out that stuff. Mm -hmm. I will refer to them. I, I think one thing that people in our industry are sometimes lacking is that capacity to say, you know what, let me be comfortable in not knowing certain things. Right. But then the one thing I choose, let me be really good at that one thing so that when people need that, they'll think of us. And when they need something else, they'll think of the person that they should go and see. We've got too many people trying to be good at too many things. And I think that's um, probably coming from a lack of like... You know, maybe self-esteem or I don't know what, but definitely uh, the people that I really like to work with are people that say, you know what, I'm good at this. Mm -hmm. And then it's easy for me to just say, listen, I have a client. Can you see them? I, I spot that they have X, Y, and Z, and it seems to be that your work could help. And then you send them off and everyone's happier. But we're, we're complex individuals. And as you say, often enough, if you study things holistically, you'll realize that you're left with more questions than answers. But then to get these answers, you need to surround yourself with people right. that have studied a particular aspect and what it means for the client. And it's maybe harder in Quebec because we have this socialized, you know, medicine system where we figure we pay enough taxes that we should be taken care of. Mm -hmm. I don't dispute that, but we're not. Mm -hmm. So then it comes to a point where the people that consult you and me are saying, I'm going to pay my taxes. Hopefully they do. <laughs> you figure. And then. But for myself, I want more. So I accept to take charge of that financially, time-wise, and I'm going to go and seek potentially these many experts. So then they might have to invest in two, three people, maybe at the same time. And so I get that that can be costly, but then I'm thinking, what else will you spend your money on if you don't have you to work with? Right. Like how much is your car worth when you can't even drive it anymore because you start blaming the fact that it's a suspension that gives you a headache where I'm like, dude, your neck doesn't turn. <laughs> like your neck is so stiff before you get into that car uh, that you can blame the car, but we could also just make your neck mobile and stable. And maybe you can then not only tolerate your new car, but maybe you can actually enjoy it. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's the education you and I have been doing for years and uh, you for a few more, but, uh, but that we need to keep doing it. That's why we're teaching because we need people to keep saying the yeah. same things because I think we're closer to the truth than others if we have that perspective of things yeah i think i agree with you i think i think where i diverge a little bit is i think that the i think it's important to be as 
as good as you can be in your, your area of quote-unquote expertise. But I also think this understanding of not, not having expertise in various uh, domains, but having knowledge of yeah. uh, is important. I think, and I think we're saying the same thing, but ultimately what I, I find happens too often is people become a, a singular expert, but they divest themselves so much of that inner connection that they don't understand the symbiotic Which is a risk of what they do. You yeah. Know? You need to recognize that, uh, you know, if you're, you're vested in more psychology that physiology and nutrition affect those. And there may be a time where what your solution set is not working is because the nutrition is off or the, the physiology is off. And how do you recognize those things yeah. to a degree? You know? And I, I think that's, in essence, what's bringing us together. And in a few minutes from now, we're going to do a live um, about a course that you and I are going to be teaching in France, bringing our brains together. And effectively, what we're doing is we're saying, okay, Matthew has this expertise in his area. I have expertise in my area. We recognize that there are times where his expertise is is the truth in some sense, or my expertise is the truth. And how do we recognize those differences and combine them? And combine them to create a better mousetrap, so to speak. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a big value proposition. Well, sir, I will sort of culminate our moment together. It's been a, a nice uh, fifty minutes of chatting. Um, I will leave you with uh, one question, and that is if you were to run into yourself when you were, you know, maybe pre-first divorce, so to speak, what would you say to that Matthew Boulay to change his mindset or his thought process a bit, something you've learned since? Take 15 minutes and go for a walk. Hmm. As easy as that. Cool. Yeah. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that. Well, sir, thank you for taking the time. It's been a joy. So just to add on here at the end, uh, Matthew and I came back because I forgot to do my important piece of uh, the uh, astrological uh, purpose statement. So I wanted to pull this back in before we go. Um, Matthew is a Leo 4, born August 22nd. His purpose is to use your versatility and your catalytic nature to separate from security and manifest your dreams in the world, to change the lives of all you meet, to change the world through your ideas, actions, and unique ability to destroy and rebuild within the system. Men can starve from a lack of self-realization as much as they can from a lack of bread. Richard Wright, Native Son. The Sun 4 dynamic brings the power to shatter opposition through the incredible ability to use whatever it's it is available. Life seems like a series of uncontrollable events. Leo fours love dodging debris. They are attracted to tension and chaos. If it's not available, they know how to create it. They are catalysts and the center of other people's lives. Either through their quiet courage or their outspoken individualism, they give others strength and insight. Struggle and discipline have toughened the Leo four. In fact, this dynamic is so strong it can be dangerous if it's handled improperly. Without sensitivity and a desire to contribute something to mankind, Leo Fours can be hard, cruel, and cold, believing they have all the answers to their lives and yours. Their ingenious approach to life makes them inventors. They create what they need as they go along. Leo Fours must not forget that boundaries help to accomplish goals. They must embrace discipline, and when faced with the impossible odds, they should tackle the little stuff first. The stronger when a few obstacles are out of the way. The roller coaster of life will always be there. Leo Forrest should know that the ups and downs teach them just how good they are when the adrenaline is flowing. 
based on the conversation I've had with you, uh, I think that's pretty bang on. So, that's scary uh, shit. Man. <laughs> we will leave people with that one. Yeah. Have a good day. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.